Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be focusing on the recent updates to the IDSA diagnostic guidelines. And to discuss these are Dr. Angela Caliendo with Brown University and Dr. Cesar Arias with the University of Texas. Both are IDSA board and COVID-19 testing guideline panel members. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Arias, I'm going to start with you. Can you highlight the guidelines changes around acceptable testing specimen types? The guidelines have evolved a lot since the start of the pandemic, obviously, because uh, people have become very innovative. The pressure to have uh, new modalities of testing has increased. And of course, the ability to report this rapidly has also increased. So um, at the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic, our initial recommendation was based on the data that, that the nasopharyngeal swab was the gold standard. And we understood that that was not a perfect, but that was the gold standard. And after that, uh, many publications particularly tried to assess other sample types that including oropharyngeals, different kind of nasal swabs and saliva, which, which was one of the most important developments in the uh, in the sample typing, because of course with saliva um, there was no need for intervention, although that brought some other caveats uh, that we may discuss later. So we analyzed the data on on these new types and tried to compare to the gold standard that was nasopharyngeal swab that we understand is not a perfect uh, sampling. When we analyzed the data, we saw that there is a good correlation and equivalence between these sample types, including saliva, taken either as a, as a saliva a sample or what we call coughing in the saliva and that perform a little bit better um, and other sample tests. The one that did not yield the same equivalence was the oropharyngeal tests alone that uh, was found to be uh, less sensitive than the others. But in general, the other sample ties were very equivalent and and that uh, allows us to update our recommendation and suggest those sample types for convenience. Of course, people will um, adjust this uh, recommendation based on the ability of they have, for example, of swabs, reagents, and of course, the logistics to, to do, for example, saliva tests and other situations. Saliva testing for the clinical laboratory can be challenging. It's a difficult specimen to work with. It can have a lot of bubbles in it. It can be viscous, particularly when people cough prior to providing saliva. So the, your laboratory will definitely need to validate this specimen type before they can offer it clinically. Some of these saliva tests may be actually at home tests, and that presents another set of challenges of people putting the specimen right inside the container, uh, not in the borders. There may be possibility of a spillover of, of, of a potential infectious agent that indicates that you may need a, an additional container to try to protect. So although um, saliva sounds like a great specimen, um, uh, validation and logistical challenges remain, and that has to be taken into consideration when you're testing patients. All excellent points, doctors, and we will be speaking more about that at-home testing, Dr. Arias, later in the podcast. Dr. Caliendo, what are the latest recommendations regarding rapid testing? Just as Cesar mentioned about specimen type, and there's a lot more information now than there was when we put the guidelines out in May, the same is true for these rapid tests. 
we finally had enough information in publication that we could review and make recommendations regarding the use of these rapid tests. But before I get into our recommendation and how we arrived at that, let me just define a rapid test for you. What we're talking about here are tests that generate a result in an hour. This includes all the steps of the assay. So you basically load a cartridge with the sample, put the cartridge on the instrument, and within an hour you have a result. It does not include the time it takes to collect the specimen and transport the specimen to whatever testing site you might be using. These tend to be very simple tests to perform, minimum number of steps involved, and they can often be done near the patient. And one of the advantages of them, they don't require um, highly trained laboratory personnel. Some of these tests out there can take as little as 15 minutes. Others take closer to the entire hour. Now, this contrast, this rapid test contrasts into what we call standard laboratory testing. And that usually requires highly trained laboratory professionals. Those tests take several hours to perform. Some of them take as much as four or five hours to perform, and they may need to be batched. They're not run on demand as they come into the laboratory. So a big difference between what we considered rapid and what we considered standard nucleic acid testing. Now, within the rapid bucket, there are two different types of tests. One are PCR tests, and the other are isothermal tests. Now, the only rapid isothermal test that we had enough data on to make any recommendations is the ID-NOW test. There were quite a few rapid RT-PCR assays that are out there and available that we were able to make a recommendation. So we suggest in the guidelines now that you can either use rapid RT-PCR testing or standard laboratory-based nucleic acid testing over rapid isothermal tests. And so why did we make this recommendation? Well, there were, as I said, quite a bit of literature out there, and some of them looked at multiple tests in a single study where they used the same specimens and they maybe tested three, four, five different assays. And when you structure it this way, the study this way, it allows you to define a composite reference standard, which is being positive in at least two of the assays that were tested. When you do that and you have what's considered a positive test or positive patient, then you can compare the performance of the rapid test to the standard molecular test. And when we did this with the uh, rapid RT-PCR testing, we found that their sensitivity was equivalent to the laboratory-based test. It was very high. It was like 97% for both of them. But when we looked at the studies that around the rapid isothermal test and compared that to the standard NAT, the rapid isothermal had a sensitivity of about 81% compared to 99% for the standard NAT. A substantial difference. So if you use the isothermal test, you're gonna end up seeing more false negative results than you will if you use a rapid RT-PCR test. So you have to balance the value of getting the result quickly while the patient is still in front of you and being able to make recommendations and treatment decisions and quarantine and isolation decisions with the risk of missing a positive case because the test is less sensitive. And, you know, if you have false negatives, that means you're going to potentially delay diagnosis. This allows the virus to spread. You won't be putting people in isolation. So there's a real give here about the value of being fast, but the trade-off of it not being quite as sensitive. And like I said, when you're talking about rapid RT-PCR tests, 
those aren't just as sensitive as the standard test. It's the rapid isothermal or the ID now test that really is the fast test. It's the 15 minute test, but it is clearly less sensitive. We do understand though, we live in a reality world here where isothermal, the rapid isothermal test may be the only test you have re access to reagents for. And so certainly it is better than no testing by far and away. So you may find yourself in a situation where you have access to the test and you're going to use it. You just have to know that if you have a very high clinical suspicion of someone having COVID and they test negative on the rapid isothermal test, that if you have access to either a rapid RT-PCR test or a lab-based PCR test or, or TMA assay, that you should back that negative rapid test result up. Or if you're testing in a really high prevalence or a, even a moderate prevalence, the negative isothermal test ideally should be backed up with either a rapid RT-PCR or a laboratory-based NAT. Now, I will make the comment that the vast majority of these studies are done in symptomatic individuals. There's very little data on asymptomatic individuals. And there's literature out there that says the amount of viruses can be similar in symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. There's also data out there that says asymptomatic patients has a little, have less virus so you just have to keep that in mind if you make the decision to use these rapid tests in people who are asymptomatic. And the only other comment that I'll make is that we only had data on the rapid isothermal test was the ID-NOW test. And we really need data on other assays that are out there that are these simple, easy to use isothermal tests other than the ID-NOW. Uh, this time, uh, at least the panel uh, decided to be a little bit more stringent in defining a positive case. And we use in some of these analysis some composite um, endpoint that included a test, but also a symptoms compatible. And that allowed us to just, you know, test more specificity and sensitivity in a more uh, precise way. Although, you know, with the limitations of the data out there. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Excellent points, doctors. Thank you for sharing your extensive research on this topic. Dr. Arias, I'd like to stick with you. What role does antigen testing play here? Yeah, very hot topic right now. Um, uh, the first thing I want to say is that uh, we are actively working on produce some guidelines on antigen testing. There has been an explosion of data on antigen testing, and, and we are working very hard to try to get you updated on the antigen testing. So antigen testing is a very um, attractive modality for some of the reasons that Angie mentioned before. Um, in terms of both making di rapid diagnostics, so the majority of these tests use the nucleocapsid protein of, of the virus that is usually shed early in the disease, so you can identify people early, and they it take minutes, uh, some of them really, you know, just a few minutes to do it. 
uh, and also with the use not only in symptomatic patients to for diagnosis, but of course as a public health tool potentially to do a screening in a symptomatic population and rapid screening on a symptomatic population. So there is a lot of interest in companies to develop this antigen test. And um, um, last time I checked um, uh, over the last weekend and today is a Monday, there were about 12 EUA-approved antigen tests, the majority uh, with uh, different modalities that include uh, lateral flow and others uh, uh, technic- techniques to detect and mostly the nucleocapsid uh, protein. The main caveat of this test is, of course, the accuracy and the lack of sensitivity of this test. Some of these tests look good um, and they are good data, um, but others, the sensitivity uh, of parameters are not that great. They, they all have better specificities. So the possibility of having a false positive is low. So that could be used as an interesting first step. But it is clear that this antigen test may have a role. And there's probably at the beginning, without having a very good test, you probably need to pair that with some nucleic acid tests. So for example, patients that are in a high prevalence or are with high clinical suspicions, which you have availability of an antigen test, um, um, and, and the test come up negative, you probably want to confirm that uh, with a nucleic acid test or something, because it's there in that scenario where, where the antigen tests are somehow limited. There is uh, an important discussion going on to try to uh, overcome that lack of sensitivity with more frequent testing. There are some modeling tests uh, data that suggest that frequent testing can potentially overcome that lack of sensitivities. I'm not fully convinced that that's a, 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 a strategy that has been validated, particularly at a home testing where human behavior in, you know, uh, is involved. And as we know from other things, people don't tend to follow the rules exactly. And, and that could potentially cause problems. And that has been seen in instances with these strategies have been implemented. So antigens testing are there. People are using them. We will produce the data so people can have some guidelines soon. But what is more important is to understand what type of test you are using, what are the specification of the test, and what are the, 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 the way to confirm this with a more standardized nucleic acid testing uh, at this point. Thank you for that thorough answer, Dr. Arias. Dr. Caliendo, back to you. How do variant viruses like the one currently affecting the UK impact diagnostic test performance? Let's look at these tests by category. So let's start with the molecular assays that we have out there. So the majority of our molecular assays do not target the spike protein or the spike gene in the case of molecular. So there will be no effect on the the mutations for the UK strain on the assay. So the assay will continue to perform just fine or the tests that target the spike. And there are three tests that the FDA put out that might be impacted because they have a target that is at the spike gene. They could be impacted by this uh, UK variant. The one test that's interesting is the thermal Fisher test, the TAC path, which has three targets on it. And one, the N1, the N2, and spike. So what they're seeing with this variant 
is the N1 and N2 will be positive, but the spike will be negative. And it's interesting because it seems to be a way to have a clue to whether or not the variant is potentially circulating. And then you can go on and, and uh, sequence the virus. Now, not all spike dropouts are in fact the UK variant. Some of them drop out because they have mutations that don't really impact the um, transmissibility of the virus, or they just may be low copy number um, samples. So that's, that's molecular tests. If, if they assay target spike, there could be a problem. If it does not, there would not be a, an issue with the uh, performance. Same with antigen tests. The vast majority of antigen tests actually target the nucleocapsid. So if your antigen test doesn't target the spike protein, you're not going to have any issues with its performance. Similarly with serology, if the serology test is looking for antibody against nucleocapsid, which the majority of them are, it will be unaffected by the variant, the UK variant. If it is an antibody test that targets antibody to the spike protein, it may well be impacted. We don't have a lot of data on the performance of these tests yet. Thank you for your answers, Dr. Colliando. Sticking with you, Dr. Arias mentioned the at-home testing capability earlier in the podcast, and recently the FDA, as you know, approved the use of some of them via an emergency use authorization. Where are we right now with these home tests, and what are the challenges associated with them? So this is a very interesting time because we now have two EUA home antigen tests. They're a little bit different. One of them requires a prescription and the other one does not. One of them is actually visually read by the patient in conjunction with a proctor. And you actually call into a telemedicine proctor to make sure that the test result is read quickly and inaccurately. The other test that's out there is actually, it's a little self-contained cartridge that you load with the sample and the test is run and read right inside of that little small single-use instrument. Um, there's a lot of enthusiasm about these assays, but the, we don't have a great deal of data at this time. The studies that were done that are in the package inserts are relatively small, and one of the studies in particular was done in a very high prevalence area. So there you would expect to see the best possible performance. It's interesting that neither of these tests can distinguish between SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2, and both of them target the nucleocapsid protein. For both, you need a smartphone. For uh, the Alum assay, you need a smartphone to just get the result of the assay. So you can't do the test at all without the smartphone. There's an app that you download. Um, and then for the Binax assay, you also need a smartphone, but it's not so much to read it, it's to transmit the result from the proctor back to you. So the tests look good in the little bit of data that we have. And I think we're gonna see the same thing with these tests that we see with other antigen tests as Cesar commented on, is that their best performance is when you're early in the onset of symptoms within five to seven days of symptom onset. In fact, the Binax test re is recommended to be used in that time frame. It's interesting that we have these new tools available to us. We're looking at assays that are really quite specific. The challenge will be more of their sensitivity and making sure you get them early in, 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 the, in the course of infection. But it's also very going to be very challenging. How well will these perform when we release them to people at home? Can they follow the directions? 
Do they understand how to interpret the results? What does a negative result mean when you have symptoms that are very consistent with COVID? Obviously, we understand you should go and get a molecular assay, but everybody may not have that realization. And remember, the cost of this is going to be totally on the patient. And that's going to be impactful on who actually can afford to access this type of testing. I, so I think we're in a very interesting time. I, it's fascinating that two companies were able to get technology that is simple enough that it could be EUA, um, receive EUA clearance for use at home. That's promising. And I think we're going to see these technologies continue to have a role in diagnostics moving forward, even after the pandemic. I just wanted to highlight what Josanji said about the most vulnerable populations, um, particularly um, the minority populations in which this virus is a big deal. And those in theory will be the ones who will benefit more of this test if they were affordable and uh, accessible to this because of the cost and the limitations in the technology where those tests, deploying those tests are gonna be very, is gonna be very challenging. And, and that will be where the strategies to try to bring those tests to these vulnerable populations will be most impactful to control the epidemic. The unevenness of this epidemic is clear, not only in the symptoms, but also in the diagnostic field. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any further discussion. Dr. Caliendo? You know, it's just a very exciting time for diagnostics. We've seen the field move forward dramatically with different technologies and these rapid tests that are so simple to perform and now having home testing. So there's a lot that has come out during this pandemic that we will see impact diagnostics for years now moving forward. With the introduction of the vaccines, for example, there may be new data about serological tests and all this that we will be addressing, um, but I fully agree with Angie about the, the excitement and the ability to potentially develop new technologies and have more data to be more concrete to finally end this, this pandemic. I'd like to take this time to thank Drs. Arias and Caliendo for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's Real-Time Learning Network, covid19learningnetwork.org, and tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.